Good evening. Welcome back tonight. We're glad that you're here. If you have your Bible, go ahead and be opening up to the book of Joshua, chapter number 11. Joshua, chapter 11, that's where we'll spend our time tonight. We are going old school tonight. We don't have PowerPoint, so if you want to, you'll be able to follow along with us in, in your Bible and make notes or whatever you need to do, whatever you want to do in regard to that. As we begin our lesson tonight, there's something that we have not said, I don't think, as we have gone through the book of Joshua. But as we look at the book of Joshua, it primarily looks at three different ideas or different focuses on three different areas of the conquest of the promised land. Now the first part of it is we come, as we see them, they come into the promised land and we see them crossing over the Jordan. And when they do that, they come to the place that we know of as Jericho. And so that first part of the conquest is the, is the conquering of Jericho and Ai. There's, uh, you know, some things that are related to Ai when uh, they were trying to take that because of what happened at Jericho with Achan and so forth. And we spent quite a bit of time in regard to that. But then the second part of the conquest of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of Canaan, of Palestine, of the Promised Land, is in chapter number 10 that we looked at last time we studied together. And as we look at that, we see a group of kings that combine forces, if you will, and they come against the children of Israel, and God fights for the children of Israel and helps them to conquer them. But those kings come from the, the southern part of, uh, of the promised land. And so they have gone in at Jericho, and, and it's not quite halfway up. It, it's somewhat in the middle, we might call it. They take Jericho and they take Ai, and then these southern kings, they come up against them, and God helps the children of Israel conquer the southern part of Palestine. Tonight in chapter number 11, we're going to see another group of kings that, that band together to fight against the children of Israel. And this time, it's kings from the northern part uh, of, uh, of Palestine. And so they have conquered somewhat of the middle. They have conquered the southern part. And now their focus is on the northern part of, of Israel or of Palestine or the Promised Land, however you want to refer to that. And so as we read chapter number 11, or at least parts of it tonight, we're not going to take time to read all of it, but as we read parts of it, we know that we're discussing what's taking place in the, in the northern cities, in the northern portion uh, of, uh, of the promised land. What are some of the things, as we look at chapter number 11, we'll just jump in. There are four things that I want to discuss tonight. But what are some of the things that when we read this chapter and we read about the conquest that's happening there in the northern part, what are some of the things that we can learn from, that, uh, from this chapter, what are some of the things that, that not only do we see that they had to endure and they had to learn to do, but will be helpful to us in our own lives here as well? Well, number one on my list tonight as we go through and we read in the book of Joshua chapter 11 is simply this. Though the foe is formidable, victory is assured when God is with us. I haven't said it in those exact terms before, but we've noticed that throughout the book of Joshua. As we have studied together, every time God fights for them, what happens? 
they win. God is the one who is helping them to conquer the, 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 the land. He is the one who has given them the land. But I think it's interesting that God shows us that over and over and over again. And He shows us that no matter what we're facing, He is still able to overcome that. In Jericho, what was it? It was these huge walls that were uh, built. And so they were able to overcome that because God caused the walls to fall down. What was it in conquering Ai? Well, it wasn't necessarily the number of people. They said let's send fewer people, but it was sin itself that they had to overcome. And so he shows us that. In the fighting of the, uh, of the kings that were in the south, we had a, a pretty good number that had gathered together, and God helps to fight them, and he himself intervenes by throwing down, if you will, hailstones from heaven and, and literally killing people by doing that. And then here again, as we look at chapter number 11, we'll see yet another obstacle that, that these children of Israel face as they are conquering the promised land. Now look at verses 4 and 5, Joshua chapter four, or 11, verses 4 and 5. In the first part, he's identified the, 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 the kings and who they are and how they've banded together and so forth. They've heard what has taken place below them and to the south of them, and now they have banded together. But look at verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, in number like the sand that's on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Did you notice how God, by inspiration, has Joshua to describe the army that they are now about to fight. Notice how many there were. He says they are a great horde, is the way that, that it's said in the English Standard Version. But he says if you were to count them, if you're looking at that great number of people, it's like looking at the sand on the seashore. Now remember, when God had made a promise to Abraham, He said, I will cause your descendants to be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the heaven. He was able to multiply the descendants of Abraham, uh, you know, in great numbers. But here is an army that little old Israel, little old Palestine, or the, the Israelites are, are fighting in Palestine, or Canaan, or however again you want to refer to it, Here's this small army, if you will, that had come out, and now they're about to face this great horde that numbers more, as it were, than the sand of the seashore. Now, I don't know exactly how many soldiers they had. I don't know how many chariots they had for certain. I, I do know that later on, the historian Josephus writes about what is said here. And he has some information in regard to that. And this is what Josephus says. He says the army that they were fighting was composed of 300,000 armed footmen, 10,000 horsemen, 
and 20,000 chariots. And so we're looking at a great army that they are about to face. But not only is it, is it large in number, the Bible itself says that they had many chariots and horses. Now when you think about that, you're seeing yet another of the obstacles that they had to, that they had to face. What were the main weapons that the children of Israel had and fought with? Well, as best as we can tell, they had weapons like the short sword, which in the normal case ranged in size anywhere from 10 inches to about 18 inches in length. And it was double, double-sided. Some of them had these swords. You'll see sometimes the Middle Eastern swords that are sort of round, and there's a name for that, and I can't think of the name off the top of my head right now. But they had that. It was a single-edged sword. And yet they were short, and they were not all that long that they would have been using. They would also have been using as some of their main weapons bows and arrows and slings and thrusting spears the ones that they would use just to stab people as they were going, and they did have some throwing javelins. And we know that because of some of the things that we see in regard to them. Now, as you think about what they had to fight with, think about this army that they are fighting against. While you're thinking about that, let me see if I can illustrate it for us. How many of you have ever watched an old Western movie? You see the cowboys and the Indians fighting, and, and, and you know that there's a large number of Indians that are about to conquer a bunch of cowboys. And I'm sitting here thinking when I see that, man, if they just had some tanks and some F-16s, they'd make short work of that. I mean, they could end that in a hurry. Well, it's not quite tanks and F-16s that this great army had, but in that day it would almost be equivalent to it. Here are people who are running around on foot with little bitty short weapons. And here are these massive chariots with horses. And you're having to fight in the midst of that. This battle almost seems like it's lost before they even start. And yet God tells them, go down, don't be afraid. Go down and fight with them. But it's interesting to me that in this case... Verse 6 says that they're not to be afraid. But in this case, the intervention that God gives is not necessarily miraculous like he had done with the walls of Jericho or even with the hailstones that had fallen, but in the timing that God uses. Notice verse number 6. He says, go down and don't be afraid, but he tells them when to do it. Tomorrow, he says, I will give them basically into your hand. I'll give them dead. Tomorrow. He's telling them when they are to go. Now we know, according to the scripture here, that that this great army has assembled. And he tells us where they had assembled. They're near the waters of Miram. And according to those who know the land, they know that when they are gathered in that place... It's not the best place for battle for people who have chariots and horses. You see, evidently what the kings were doing 
is they were using this area as a staging area to get their armies together so that they would be ready to go and fight. They weren't preparing to fight in that place. They were ready to stage and then go and attack the children of Israel. And God said, uh, y'all go down tomorrow and catch them there. Catch them in a place where their chariots are not going to do them any good. They can't maneuver. Their horses are not going to do them any good because they're hemmed in. And now you take your little short swords, and you take your little javelins, and you take your thrusting spears, and your bows and your arrows, and your slings, and you invade them where they are. And guess what? It worked. God intervened in that way, not in a miraculous way by sending some group of angels down to fight with them and to slay them like he had done and would do later in different places. He simply directed them the right way, the appropriate way, the right time to do it. You know, there are a lot of times in life when we can overcome obstacles when we do it at the right time and when we do it in the right way. How about a word fitly spoken? The Bible say something about that? Absolutely. Sometimes we can overcome obstacles, some, some difficulty that we have in our life with another person by simply speaking in the right way and at the right time. You see, we could go on and we could look at other examples of that and and try to use the, the illustration that God is giving to us here. If you look on down in Joshua chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom, fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mizrephethmaim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until none remained. There was none remaining. They won. The foe was formidable. They had the tools. They had the equipment. They had the manpower to wipe Israel out. And yet God was for them, and Israel won. We'll face big foes in our life, won't we? We talk about that when we talk about David and Goliath. But here we have yet another illustration from the Word of God that when God's on our side, no matter what we're facing, we can win. That ought to be an encouragement to us. What is our theme for this year? The battle belongs to the Lord. And so here it is again spelled out for us in this passage. But secondly tonight, as we look at the book of Joshua, chapter number 11, here's a second thing that jumps out at me. And by the way, we're going to be looking, as I said, at four things. And and there are a number of other things that we won't get to that are are really good to discuss out of chapter number 11. Let's look at this second thing that I have on my list. It's simply this. I must respect God's commands even though they're difficult. Even though they're hard, I have to respect the commands of God. Look there again in Joshua chapter 11, 
Drop on down to verse number 10, and let's read together verses 10 through 12. There the Bible says, And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire, and all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Moses was dead and gone. But he had given instructions to Joshua and to the people of Israel He had relayed instructions, I guess you might say, that God had given him that they were to follow. And what was it? Devote the people to destruction. How much so? In this passage, notice there in verse number 11, how many did they devote to destruction and to what extent they devoted them to destruction? There was none left that breathed. Now get the full in might of that. None left that breathe. The soldiers, none of them who were left, they're attacking the cities and taking the cities now. The soldiers, none of them left to breathe. The soldiers' wives, none of them left to breathe. Well, what about the soldiers' children and even the babies? Were they breathing? Well, they were, but none of them were left. Now you think about that, and think about, here are, here are godly people who respect God and respect life. And God said to them, when you go, destroy it. How do you do something like that? How do you carry something like that out? That's hard. Now look at a few passages with me. Let's just catch ourselves up with what is said in the Old Testament Scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. This is what Moses had said. Notice there at the end of our reading in Joshua chapter 11 that they did just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded But in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded It wasn't what Moses thought ought to be done. God said, do it this way. What's more, back up in the book of Deuteronomy to chapter number 7, at verse number 2. Again, Moses is giving them instructions prior to what we read in chapter 20. He says, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. And watch this last part of that verse. 
and show no mercy to them. Show no mercy to them. I thought God was the God of all mercy. There comes a time when God says, mercy is not appropriate. He instructs them, show no mercy. Everything, every person that was alive, everything that breathes was to be put to death. Somebody says, how could God, the God of mercy, be so cruel to have them to kill even the little babies that are there? That is a good question, isn't it? It's something that we should look at and consider. Have you ever thought about it in these terms, though? That children suffer at the hand of evil parents. Children suffer at the hands of evil parents. Did you realize that even the Israelites' children are said to have suffered because of their parents' faithlessness in the Old Testament? If you have your Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 14, verse 33. Numbers chapter 14, verse 33. Remember the children of Israel, they were at the edge of the promised land. They were spied out. The spies come back and say, we can't take it. And so God says what? You're going to wander in the wilderness till all this generation dies off. Ended up being 40 years. Numbers 14 verse 33 says, And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. What really had they done? except to say, well, God, we really don't trust you that we can go in and take the land. And now because of their actions, these children of theirs are going to grow up. Not in a land flowing with milk and honey. Not in a land that, that provided everything that they would need, but out in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if that's the case with, with the children of Israel, because of their faithlessness, what about all of these wicked people who are living in that land? Who are sacrificing their babies to idols? Who are doing all kinds of horrible acts upon their children? We need to realize that physical life is not the only life there is. You ever read Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2? The righteous man perishes, no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. 
He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. And he's talking about the righteous, those who live in the right way. He said, basically when they are taken from this life, what happens? They got something a whole lot better waiting on them. Who is more pure than a little child? Who is said to make up the kingdom of heaven to illustrate the kind of people that we are to be more than little children? Do we remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 116 verse 15? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. You see, rather than these children suffering at the hands of evil parents, y'all ever heard of an evil parent in our day who burns their children with cigarettes or breaks their arms or legs or chokes them or... Is it possible that when we understand that physical life is not all there is, and that those who are faithful to God and those who have never sinned at all are ushered into a life that we can't even begin to imagine here, that God is not punishing these little babies? And these little children, but rescuing them, taking them away from the blight, the sin, and all of the things that we face here. Somebody said, well, if that's the case, preacher, then maybe we all just kill our own babies and let them go directly to heaven. Just, just go ahead and send them on before us. Folks, understand, that's not for us to decide. That's not our, not our job. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, talks about death, and it says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The fact that all spiritual, or rather physical life, originates with God, it... it it came from Him. It gives Him the prerogative to decide when and how the physical life should be maintained or when it should be terminated. The same is true in the case back that we read about back in the book of Genesis, chapter number 6, beginning. When God instructed Noah to build an ark and every living thing except the people, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, those eight people, and every living thing was wiped out. Was God cruel in killing the little babies along with their parents, or was God rescuing them? What about in a place of such sin and degradation, or places such as Sodom and Gomorrah, when you couldn't even find ten righteous people that would have saved the city? Do you think there were any kids there? Children of parents who were willing to rape strangers? 
You see, it was hard for the children of Israel, I'm sure. They had feelings. They loved their children as much as we would love ours. And taking the lives of every living person in a city was sure to leave scars. You talk to some of these men who have fought in battles, World War II and Korea and other places, Vietnam, and to see the tragedy that they've seen and think about how difficult it must have been for God's army to do what they did. But they were commanded to do it by God. Show them no mercy. When I think about what they had to do in order to be faithful to God, what God's asked us to do pales in comparison, doesn't it? Because He didn't tell us to go out and snuff out the lives of those who will not become Christians. He tells us to go out and try to convert them so that their soul can be saved. Are we willing to be as faithful to God in the little things that God has asked us to do as these people were in the hard things that He asked them to do? Number three, we must be willing to depend on God. Now obviously, in a lot of the things that we see here, we know that we have to depend on God, but... Go back to chapter 11, verse 6. We want to back up in the chapter just a little bit. We've already read verse number 6, but I want to go back and focus on one other part of that. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give uh, give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And if you're reading through the commentaries, some suggest that, well, they were to hamstring the horses, and by doing that, they were to cut the ligaments and even the, uh, the blood vessels in the back of the horse in his leg so that he could not move, and he would bleed to death. Okay? There was a procedure that you could use just to cut that, uh, that ligament back there and, and, and do that, but if you're a soldier, you're not going to take time to do a surgical procedure. You're going to cut the whole thing. And so it wouldn't be long. Those horses were dead. God says to hamstring them. Some have suggested, well, you know, if you did that, they couldn't retreat. It would hinder their retreat. They, they, you certainly wouldn't be able to do it necessarily in battle. If I'm reading it correctly, it seems that they were to do this after the battle was finished to hamstring the horses, to burn the chariots. Why? Why? Why can't you just next time use the horses and the chariots against the rest of the people that you're going to be fighting against? 
Deuteronomy chapter 20 at verse 1 says, When you go out to war, this is Moses giving instructions to the children of Israel, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He had promised that they would encounter this, and that he would be with them. He said that even before they entered the promised land. But notice what the psalmist said in Psalm 20 at verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know, I gave the illustration a while ago about the cowboys and the F-16s and the tanks. And man, how, how easy it would have been to fight. Can you imagine what these people... God's people with little bitty weapons must have thought if they could get their hands on chariots, wow, if we can conquer armies like this with these little things and God's with us, what can we do when we get the tanks and the F-16s? Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But God's people were not to do that. They were to trust in the Lord. We read about on occasions, you know, some of the guys who were sent out, they had too many soldiers. God said, send some of them home. You get down, Gideon has 300 in his army. And they win by taking pitchers and lamps. God is with them. Even in the time after they conquered the promised land, when they would ask for a king to be like the nations around them, God said, hey, here's one thing that you better not do, that your king better not do, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. God said, don't build up an army of horses and chariots. And they didn't listen. Solomon did what? Build an army of horses and chariots. 1 Kings 4 verse 26, the Bible said, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 1 Kings 10, verses 26 through 28 says, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. And Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. Solomon did exactly what God said, don't do. Isaiah would address the matter in Isaiah 31 verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 
You see, that was the problem. They had the tendency to begin to depend on the horses and the chariots rather than on their God. What kind of horses and chariots are we depending on? What is our crutch through life? What takes the place of our God? Our job, our money, the nation we live in. What takes the place of our God? We must be willing to depend on God. Number four, and very quickly tonight because we're running out of time. We must be in it with the Lord for the long haul. Look again at Joshua 11, verses 16 through 18. Let's read it real quick. Joshua took all, the, all that uh, land, the hill country and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Now this is the conquering that he was doing. Now look at verse 18. That's the one that you want to focus on. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. When you read Joshua chapter 2 and following, and they take Jericho and they take Ai, you get to chapter 10 and they start taking the southern part, you get to chapter 11 and they're taking the northern part. By the time you get to the end of chapter 11, they're, they're ready to divide the land. There was peace in the land. If I read that, it takes me 10 minutes maybe to read it. And we get the idea, well, I dare so they were through. They made war a long time. How long was it? We don't know the exact number of years. But we got a pretty good guess. We can guess because of what we read in the book of Joshua, chapter 14, verses 7 through 10. I'm not going to take time to read all of it. I'm going to sum it up for you. One of the spies who went with the spies to spy out the land the first time, y'all remember then? Uh, one of them comes, one of the ones who was spared comes and he says uh, uh, the Lord promised me that Moses promised me through the, the Lord through Moses promised me that I could have a certain part of this land that was when I was 40 years old we wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and now I am 85 years old they've been fighting for at least Five years. And when Caleb asked for the land, they still hadn't conquered everything. And so most of the scholars who dare to make a guess say, we're probably looking at six to seven years that this fighting goes on. <laughs> Takes me ten minutes to read it. But six to seven years in the lives of these people who are struggling to take the promised land. They made war for a long time, the Bible says. They were in it for the long haul. 
Moses had said through the Lord, God had told Moses back in Exodus chapter 23, verses 29 and 30, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. Won't drive them out short time in the year. It will be little by little. And they had to stick with it until it was done. You know, a lot of times in our own lives, if it doesn't happen like a microwave, we cook stuff in the microwave and we've got so impatient that we can't wait till it gets finished. Now, what if you had to go back to cooking the old-fashioned way? If something doesn't happen good in the Lord's church right now, if we don't grow to be 300 or 500 right now, we might as well just throw up our hands and say, well, we can't grow. People won't listen to the Lord. They won't listen to truth. They... It takes time to do the work of the Lord. And we have to be in it for the long haul. Well, our time has passed up tonight, and we've got to quit. But I hope these four lessons that we've looked at from the book of Joshua chapter 11 are, are things that are, that are helpful to us as we, as we think about our own lives and how we live them for God here on this earth. It may be tonight that you've never obeyed the gospel. You've never started your life with Him, but you're ready to make that decision to be in it with Him for the long haul, to, to obey His commands no matter what they are and how difficult they may be. Because you trust in Him, not yourself. And we want to assist you tonight in your obedience to the Lord, to be baptized if that's the thing that you need, or perhaps you're here tonight and there's something amiss in your life that you want to make right in a public way. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, come right now 